Hi, welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly source for board game reviews. In this episode, Luke builds some monuments in Raw, I do some stargazing in Stellar, Lydia Ray walks the path in Suro, and Mike pours us a cold one in Brewcrafters. But first, Ruth attracts cats with her quilt-making powers in Calico. Hello, Five by listeners, it's Ruth here, talking about a new release that's been bringing color, joy, and adorable cats to our quarantine selves. That board game is, of course, 2020's Calico, designed by Kevin Russ, published by Flatout Games, and illustrated by podcast favorite Beth Sobel. This is a quick-playing, puzzly game that allows 1-5 to five players to spend roughly 30-45 to 45 minutes putting together a quilt beautiful enough to not only score points for the quality of its design, but also for the number of cats that curl up on the cozy final product. Calico players get given a hand of two hexagonal patch tiles, a quilt board, and a set of design goals placed during setup. The patch tiles come in six colors and six fabric patterns in all possible combinations, and on each of their turns the active player places one of their tiles on any free space of their board. They'll then check to see if they've met the requirements to earn either a button, with which to embellish the quilt, or to attract a cat. Button tokens are awarded for creating a group of three or more tiles of the same color, while cats are more complex. Each of the three cats chosen for the game has preferred fabric patterns, along with a preferred arrangement to be made from one of those patterns. If the tile place satisfies the cat's tastes, then the appropriate cat token will be added to the quilt. The active player then will select a new tile from a display of three before refilling from a drawbag for the next player's turn. Once everyone has filled up their quilt boards, that is after 22 rounds have taken place, someone will grab the included score pad and points will be tallied. Not only are those buttons and cat tokens worth points, but as mentioned, each player started the game with design goals to meet. Design goals can provide a lot of endgame points, and they come in a variety of difficulties. Each player will randomly select four goals from a set of six before getting to decide which three actually end up in their board. Each goal wants some combination to be created in the six hexes that surround it, say three pairs or all different, and this can be met with either color or pattern to earn points, or with both color and pattern to earn even more points. So getting to decide which of your random tiles to throw out at the start of the game along with where to place all three tiles that you keep, lets you have a little bit of control over just how difficult your goals might be. This is important because the game's limited hand size and the tile display, combined with there being only seven spots on your board that don't count towards design goals, means that you're forced to commit colors and patterns to those goals early. As you fill in more spaces, the scoring options for the remaining empty spaces get more and more limited, increasing the tension deliciously. As you start cursing every time your opponents take what you wanted, or don't refill with tiles that you need. But you can still score plenty of points from button and cat tokens, so the game ends up being a satisfying, challenging brain burn to recover from per tile draws and still come out on top. The game becomes about paying attention to when a goal might become so difficult to complete that you'll want to shift to other sources of points. And I've seen games won and lost due to the timing of that decision. Calico comes with a delightful selection of cats, from which three will be chosen for each game. And let me just point out now that these are actual cats, with each one's photograph and real-life biography featured in the rulebook. 
Handy markings ensure players get a range of difficulties, with some cats wanting you to create the right shape from hexes of their preferred pattern, while others just want a particular number to be grouped together. The cat's patterns of choice are dealt out at the start of the game, with each looking for two of the six fabric types. This setup lets individual games have very different scoring possibilities, but since after setup the only randomness will be in the tile draw, it doesn't make things so variable that it becomes frustrating. Adding even more setup variety is the inclusion of multiple game modes. These include a simpler family mode that removes the design goals, focusing on cats and buttons, a solo mode for when others aren't around, a two-player option to decrease the tile variability, and then most interestingly, a set of scenarios and achievements. The achievements tracker in the rulebook lets up to six players get credit for winning the game in certain ways, for winning while using particular rules restrictions, or for completing scenarios. Each scenario details the cats and goals that should be in play, and specifies a point minimum to reach, along with other tasks like attracting five cats or completing all of your goals with both color and pattern. The scenarios can be played multiplayer, or they can be used as essentially a solo campaign in which you don't let yourself move on to the next scenario until you succeed in passing all of the objectives of your current one. Overall, Calico is a beautiful production. The punchboard bits are thick and chunky, the boards are double-layered to avoid patch tiles slipping around, and the included drawbag is beautifully decorated, though it is a little stiff, something a bit of roughing up easily fixed for my copy. Beth Sobel's art is stunning as usual, giving the game a ton of visual appeal and table presence, and though the game's double-coating for color isn't the easiest to spot, I do appreciate its inclusion. The rulebook is excellent, featuring lots of examples, and so I would recommend this to play of all experience levels who are looking for a quick playing but tricky puzzle. In fact, friend of the show and occasional guest contributor Calvin Wong described Calico as Spiel de Jar material, Azul but with more brain burn. And I have to agree. So check out the game and let me know your favorite cat. Though if it isn't Kickstarter's special shop cat, we might have to have words. You can find me on Twitter at Ruth, that's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I have a strange relationship with auction games. Over the last 18 or so years, I've tried almost every auction game I can get my hands on, thinking I would absolutely love them, and in almost every case, I've come away disappointed in the experience. I don't mind auction mechanisms as a small part of other games. Power Grid, Yetto, and Keyflower are all some of my favorites. But the purer versions, games whose entire flow hinges on auctions, just never hit home for me. Games like Medici, The Estates, Modern Art, QE, every single one of them fell flat. I walked into all of them for almost two decades, excited for the mechanism and desperately convinced I would absolutely love them. And it's all Reiner Knizia's fault. At the turn of the millennium, I was running the game checkout library in Wizards of the Coast's R&D department. As a team-building exercise, the entire department took a day to play a bunch of new games from Germany. This is where I was introduced to the new hotness of Carcassonne and the game that would forever taint my perception of auction games, Ra. Ra is a push-your-luck set collection game centered around a throttled auction mechanism that's one of the most addictive things I've encountered in my long history playing board games. Here's how it works. At the beginning of the game, every player is given a set of three numbered tiles with values ranging from 1 to 16. On a player's turn, they'll draw a tile randomly from a bag and place it on an auction track containing eight empty spaces. Tiles are how you score points, and in classic set collection fashion, each type of tile will score differently based on how many of that type you collect. Pharaohs grant points to the player with the most, Nile tiles score one point each but only if the owner has a flood tile, Civilization tiles earn you points for having a variety, 
and monuments score at game end for sets of both different and identical statues. God tiles are interesting in that you can spend one you've previously collected to take a tile from the auction track outside an auction, which can be extremely handy to nab that flood tile you desperately need or that civilization tile to complete your set. Of course, this would all be pretty boring if there weren't some downsides, so in come the disaster tiles. There's a disaster for each type of tile, and if you collect one from an auction, it forces you to discard two tiles of the appropriate type. Without the disaster tiles, the press-your-luck element of drawing tiles from the bag would lose all its teeth. Introducing this little negative element makes every draw tense when there's a disaster already on the board, and especially when there's a tile out there you really need, but now you have to balance whether losing something else is worth it. Auctions in Raw can either be voluntarily started by any player at any time, or randomly triggered either when the auction track fills up or by drawing a raw tile from the bag. Auctions don't use currency or victory points, they're based solely on those three numbered tiles you get at the very start of the game. What I didn't mention earlier is that there will always be an extra numbered tile at the center of the board. When an auction starts, players only get one opportunity to bid, and you bid one of your numbered tiles. On your turn, you can outbid the last player or pass, with the auction ending at the player who started the whole thing. The player who wins the auction not only takes all the tiles on the auction track, but also takes the numbered tile at the board's center, and then replaces it with the tile they bid, making it a prize in the next auction. While the set collection and press-your-luck aspects of Raw are fun, by themselves they're almost simplistic, especially by modern game standards. It's the auction mechanism, specifically the interaction of the bidding tiles, that make the game the classic it's become. Not only do you have to balance the value of the auction track against the tile you're bidding, you have to decide whether the tile on the main board is valuable enough to keep you solvent in future auctions, and who's going to end up with the tile you're bidding with. These tensions are what elevate Raw to masterpiece status, a timeless game that many, myself included, consider one of Dr. Knizia's best. And it's that limited auction mechanism that I fell in love with from the start, and which ruined my ability to appropriately assess every auction game I've tried since. Lovers of auction games may need to adjust their thinking to grok the game's limitations, but will likely still love it. And having finally decided I don't like auction games writ large, I can say with some confidence that if you're not a fan of the mechanism, this might be the one auction game you'll really enjoy. The current version of Raw is published by Fantasy Flight Games, and it's just fine. The art is a little busy for my tastes, which makes the tiles sometimes a little difficult to distinguish at a distance, and the bidding tiles are just normal punchboard. I have the old Uberplay version of the game, where the art is a bit more simplistic but still beautiful, and in my opinion, more functional, and the first player marker and bidding tiles are all silk-screened wood. Raw's availability can be a touch spotty from time to time, and the newest edition can be a little expensive, running between $60 and $75. Used copies don't depreciate as much as some would like, but you can regularly find the Uberplay and Rio Grande editions on the BGG Marketplace for about $50. Bucks. That price might turn a lot of people off for what amounts to a fairly simple game. But if you're anything like me, once you play a couple games of Raw, it'll dig in like a sliver, and you'll want to play it for another 10 or 20 years. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website, PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! I think I've spent more time indoors this year than any other time in my life. Spending so much time in the same place under the same ceiling, bordered by the same walls, can shrink your world. Luckily, my wife Lorena and I have our little escapes, like zooming with our nieces while we all watch a film or playing tabletop games. And lately, we've had a strong preference for games that are meant to be played by two players. 
Hi, I'm John Gonzalez. Stellar is a card game from designers Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback and published by Renegade Game Studios. The game consists of a deck of cards representing celestial objects in five different suits and a special satellite suit that acts as a wildcard. So what can you do with all these planets, moons, asteroid, interstellar clouds, and black holes? Essentially on your turn you're adding one card to your telescope, a 12 card tableau, and one to your notebook, your notebook being the area just to the side of your telescope. The numbers on the cards range from 1 to 6 and serve different functions based on where the cards are played. When adding cards to your notebook, they are grouped by suit and number sequence. When played into your telescope, the numerical values help to score section majorities at the end of the game, which I'll come back to later. On your turn, you're going to take a card from the five cards on the offer row and add it to your hand. You then play a card from your hand into your telescope, which is represented by an arrangement of total cards in front of you. Conversely, you may instead play a card into your notebook. Whichever area you choose to play in, you have to immediately play a card into the other area. So if you play a card to your telescope, you must immediately play a second card to your notebook and vice versa. This second card, however, does not come from your hand. It comes from the offer row, which is labeled 1 through 5. So after playing a comet with a value of 3 into your telescope, for instance, you must then take the third card in the number row and place it in your notebook. I really like this little dilemma that the game presents to you every turn. You're trying to add cards that are beneficial to your telescope or notebook while keeping in mind that you're also going to have to play the corresponding card from the offer row. It's a balancing act that plays out turn by turn. I dig the tension it creates and it makes for some interesting moments in what is meant to be a short game. Games generally lasted 30 minutes for me and my wife Lorena, which is a good length since the game can get a little heated if players are the type to keep an eye on each other's tableaus and hate draft. Which Lorena and I usually don't do. And there's another reason to keep an eye on your opponent's tableau instead of the stars. At the game's end, players compare their telescopes and score points for having the highest value in each of the telescope's three sections. It's another neat scoring element that keeps players on their toes and heightens the tension a bit. But it also can lead to some more hate drafting, which Lauren and I totally don't do. Usually. And if you're looking for more scoring elements to keep track of, the game also rewards players who manage to include all five of the regular suits in their telescope. Overall, Stellar is a big hit for me and my wife. It's a light card game that can make for an interesting, quick two-player experience. I love that there are many ways to score, which leads to games that aren't one-sided. During our time with Stellar, our scores were always pretty close, and it rarely felt like someone ran away with the game. Stellar really checks off a bunch of boxes for things I look for in quick two-player games that can fit in a deck box. It has low rules overhead with good turns full of interesting choices while keeping you involved with what's going on in your partner's tableau. I've never been one to gaze at the stars, mostly because I've lived in Los Angeles for most of my life. It's hard to stargaze with all the light pollution and smog here. But like I said earlier, being indoors for so long can skew your perception of the world and I'm craving to get out of the city at least for a bit, and finding a clear patch of night sky somewhere to give me some perspective. So, while we continue to stay indoors and our in-person game nights are limited to two players, Loren and I will keep on playing games for two. Heck, we might even start thinking about taking some camping trips. It would be nice to pry our eyes from each other's tableaus and look at the stars someday soon. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening.
Hi, everyone, and welcome to Lydia's Educational Game Corner, where I take a moment to showcase my game of the day and give you tips on how you can use it in your classroom or educational space. Today's game of the day is a beautiful game of Surro by Calopy Games, designed by Tom McMurchie with artist Kathy Brigg, Shane Small, Anna Melda, and Franz van Winkel. Surro is a beautiful abstract tile laying game where you take turns taking tiles to build your path on the board. The goal is to keep your token on the board longer than anyone else, but keep in mind, as you place your tiles and move your piece, another player, depending on where you lay, will be forced to move, and the same goes for you. If your piece collides with another piece, you are out of the game. Last player on the board wins. Surro is a wonderful game to bring into your educational space. But before I get into some tips for the classroom, there are a couple of important things to keep in mind before incorporating it. First, timing. Surro is a game you can play in 15 minutes. The rules are so easy to learn, you'll be able to teach before playing. I taught this game by showing the table what it would look like with a sample turn, which took less than 5 minutes. As a result of the quick teaching, it gave us more than enough time to actually play the full game. Next, the theme. Surro has an abstract Asian spiritual theme. According to the publisher, it states the lines in the game represent the many rows that lead to divine wisdom. The aspect of choosing and having control of what paths you take is a great lesson to teach about mindfulness. I taught a lesson to my kids about their life paths and asked them, how do we choose the paths we take? Are there more than one path? And what happens if we choose a path we don't like and we can't go back? This element of teaching can apply very well in a therapeutic sense with those with trauma. How can we heal from the path of trauma and what it looks like from the individual? I stress, just like with the game, the paths look different from each one. Towards the end of the lesson, we play Surro where we experience what paths to take and to play. You will also have to consider the age and the grade. One of the best things about Surro is that it's teachable for all ages. Since you have pieces that can easily be shown, it makes it easy to teach and shows all learners and abilities. This can be taught from elementary on up, so about, I would say even five on up. And lastly, modifications. Not everyone learns at the same level and rate as others. So keep that in mind when introducing the game to players and don't be afraid to modify the game to fit the group you're playing with. This game can fit up to about two to eight players, but if you want to keep it at four, you can make teams where one person can lay the tile and the other can move the token. Also, this is a great game to introduce to kiddos that have developmental disabilities. I taught this game to my students that have autism. We had a paraprofessional there for support, but my students were able to play independently with little support. We had to do a mini break session before playing because they wanted to play with the tokens so that if that happens to you, play with the pieces. Familiarity and comfort with the game is key. After playing with the pieces, we practice moving the pieces on the tiles and then we started the game. Even with playing with the pieces, we were still able to play the game in its entirety because of how quick the game is. Don't be afraid to make a game accessible to all. That's the beauty of modification. If there is a will, there is a way. Now, let's talk about how it can be used in the classroom or in your own educational space. Not only can board games be fun, but they can also provide a great learning experience for all that play. I'm going to give you a few tips on how you can. If I taught this game in my public speaking drama classroom, I would have my kiddos write a speech on what it means to create a path and how that path can affect them and others. In the theater realm, they would write a monologue and perform about a path they took and the result of it. In addition, with the Asian spiritual theme, in social studies, you could teach an Asian culture lesson and how different it is than others. And lastly, for an artistic project, 
You can have your students create their own theme serial boards and compare similarities and differences to the main game. Well, everyone, there are so many things you could do, but so little time. But hopefully these tips will help you begin your journey of bringing the education into your gaming experience. Thank you for tuning in to Lydia's Educational Game Corner. Till next time, happy learning and happy gaming. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like board games and beer. I'd say affectionado, but just like in board games, there's a lot in the beer industry that revolves around proving your dedication and other BS that I'm not really into. So let's just keep it to like beer. So when in October of 2013, I heard that a game about brewing beer was coming to Kickstarter, I backed it right away. And then in classic Mike form, I talked myself out of it because at the time I convinced myself that Brewcrafters was more about running a brew pub, and I didn't want to run a brew pub. And there was this other game that I could maybe back instead. Of course, I was wrong on all counts. That other game didn't happen. And Brewcrafters? Well, I was dead wrong about that too. So let me tell you why. The story of Brewcrafters starts way back in 2007. And please note, none of this is canon. It's all in my head. So don't tell designer Ben Rossett that this is the story of his game. But in 2007, an Uwe Rosenberg created his huge hit called Agricola that became the number one game in board gaming. But in my mind, that wasn't enough for Ben. No, Ben played Agricola and said, This makes no sense. We both have ovens. How come only you can bake bread? And of course, since Ben was clearly highly intelligent for noticing how dumb that was, he designed a game that took elements from Agricola but made it oh so much better, had it make logical sense, and made it about beer. In Brewcrafters, you are making beer. All the rest is just driving your plan. You have your player board, which is your brewery, that can be expanded in many ways, your research lab board, and your two types of workers. To keep it relatively brief, your two market workers are competing with the other player's market workers to go to stalls to get the ingredients to make beer, malt, hops, yeast, and special ingredients, hire workers with special abilities, get investment money, or forge partnerships. This all makes sense. Workers, ingredients, partnerships, these are all limited resources. When Lisa beats me to the malt importer, I'm out of luck. Similarly, when Seth beats me to the yeast, I'm out of luck. Once everyone has played both their market workers, now we move on to the brewery actions. Brewery actions are also on a central board, but cannot be blocked. You're just showing what actions you've taken. This is where you install new equipment into your brewery, process beer, do research, and contribute to collaborations. All things you can mostly do without anyone else interfering with your work. Brewing beer is kind of the point of the game. If you have the ingredients listed for one of the basic three beers, and that's everyday ale, pleasantly porter, and simply stout, you can brew the beer by taking the processed beer action. If you already have beer brewing, taking this action also allows you to move that beer further along the process until it is sold for money and that token gets flipped over for endgame points. A couple of things to remember are that in each game there are nine total beers out, three basic and six advanced. The six advanced are worth more points, but you must first brew the basic beer of that type before you can brew the advanced beer. Also, the first person to brew each advanced recipe gets a special token worth three victory points at the end of the game. But advanced beers require a lot more ingredients, and sometimes special equipment. So before you invest in that, consider the employees out, the collaborations available, and what route you may want to take for victory. Sometimes pumping out a lot of cheap beer is the way to go. But that's not for you. No, you're a beer connoisseur. Well, then you'll want to take the install equipment option and put in a mash tun, a brew pub, aging barrels, and your own farm. There are many ways to customize your brewery, but you'll eventually need a second shift and money to pay them, so make sure you're still making beer to bring in the cash. 
The last way to customize your brewery is through your research. The research board lets you advance in certain areas that give you one-time and ongoing bonuses. If you can synergize those with your strategy, you will absolutely be in the black, though money is just the tiebreaker. If this sounds like a lot, that's okay. You only start off with one brewery shift worker, so Brewcrafter starts slowly and lets you ride that learning curve. But like Agricola will leave you wishing, begging, pleading for the ability to do more. Because once the brewery phase is over, you advance the season marker once and you realize that you have only 12 seasons to complete your master plan and that is not enough time. So, what do I like about Brewcrafters? Well, it's beer. Duh. I like that everyone kind of goes their own path depending upon what employees are out and what beers are out. I like that it makes sense where things that should be limited are and things that aren't generally aren't. I like that there are a bunch of expansion materials that I haven't even touched yet and that the components are phenomenal. What don't I like about Brewcrafters? Well, like most worker placement games, there's just so much I want to do but don't have time to do them, which leaves me frustrated. I also feel like I take similar paths a lot. Oh sure, I go in telling myself that I'll try something different this game, but a couple rounds in and I've convinced myself that I'll make my standard plan work this time. Spoiler, my plan never works. I do wish we were forced a little more to branch out. The art by publisher Dice Hate Me's Chris Kirkman is also functional, but nothing to write home about. But honestly, that's really stretching it. Brewcrafters is a super solid worker placement that anyone who likes Agricola, beer, or medium weight games should check out. I can see why they turned it into a franchise, and if you want to hear my thoughts on the smaller microbrewers card game, be sure to check out episode 9. Maybe someday I'll get around to reviewing Homebrewers the Dice Game. But until then, you can find me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. Thanks for listening to The 5 by Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website, 5bygames.com. If you like what you hear on The 5 by and want to support our work, visit patreon.com slash 5 Thank you.